You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Well, welcome to the latest episode of Counter Moves. And today we're going to be talking with an individual who's a good friend of mine on a topic that it seems to be the case, at least in evangelical circles, uh, is just a raging conversation all times. And that's the issue of sexuality. And it's the issue specifically of, uh, you know, we look at homosexuality, we look at the nature of marriage, uh, these questions of, of how God made us as males and females and what is unique about us because of how God made us. And so to do that, we're going to be talking with Dr. Christopher Yuan, who is someone I've known for about four years now and who have has personally benefited from greatly just because of his piety, his kindness, his friendship, his clear writing, uh, and someone I've really come to value. And Dr. Yuan is a professor and teacher at Moody Bible Institute. Um, he is an author of several books, uh, one of them being Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God. And he is a graduate of Wheaton College uh, with his Master's of Arts. And then he graduated from 2014 from Bethel Seminary with his Doctor of Ministry. But today, we're going to be talking about his his newest book and the topic around his book, which is titled Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships shaped by God's grand story. And this is going to be a book that's going to be released on November 20th of this year. And just full disclosure, I had the opportunity to read a pre-publication copy of this and recommended it and uh, really read through the whole thing and was very impressed and thankful for what Christopher has provided for us. And what's helpful about his book is that he's, he's written a book talking about the notion of identity, but identity in, I would say, more biblically faithful way of addressing it, that he doesn't elevate sexuality to the level of identity, but he also understands the importance of sexuality to how God made us. And so, Christopher, I want to welcome you to the show, and uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to be with us. Thanks, Andrew, so much for having me. So, Christopher, one of the easiest questions is just kind of talking about the motivation behind writing holy sexuality and the gospel. I mean, so why did you write this, and why did you feel the need to write a book like this when there are a lot of other books talking about sexuality and homosexuality? I mean, there's a t- these are topics that evangelicals seem to just have uh, endless conversations and books about. Yeah, I, I think one of the main reasons why I wrote this was this, this concept of holy sexuality actually grew out of my first book. And my first book was kind of quite simply a memoir that I co-authored with my mother, and it was simply telling our story and uh, talking about how I went from uh, just a completely secular mindset to, uh, and and being, I guess, fairly successful in the world's eyes, you know, being in grad school, but then coming to this concept of 
of knowing Christ mm-hmm. and then realizing that this idea of sexuality that we've heard from the world and even that I was hearing from the church was was a bit off. So I came up with this concept called holy sexuality, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And so this, I knew that even, I just barely introduced it in my first book uh, in one of the last chapters and I knew I needed to flesh it out. So kind of that's how this concept in this book was birthed really from my first book writing, but also as I recognize and look at some of the fantastic books that are out there, many of them either focusing a lot on more practical theology, how do we simply help people um, you know, wrestle with their same-sex attractions or deal with loneliness and you know, maybe encouraging some form of friendship, those type of th- you know, ideas. Uh, but we also have a group of books that focus a lot on the ethical side, mm-hmm. wherever you might land, whether you're, you're gay affirming of same-sex relationships or hold to the biblical view of sexuality, that it's uh, sexual relationships and romantic relationships are reserved for a husband and wife and, and uh, a man and a woman. And so that's more kind of the ethical approach, uh, doing good exegesis, uh, hermeneutics, and what I found and thought was that there needed to be more of a broader uh, understanding mm-hmm. of looking at Scripture as a whole and approaching this theologically, particularly looking at systematic and biblical theology. And so right. that's that's how my book really kind of came up came about. So I mean, let's uh, let's give listeners kind of some background. Um, mm. You wrote one book with your mom already, but uh, yeah. if you wouldn't mind, just give kind of giving a short synopsis of why this topic of sexuality has become so central to to your ministry and, and to what you're writing on, and, and why are you focusing yeah. on this? Yeah, sure. Well, it's something that's very personal to me. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I wrestled with my sexuality from a, from a fairly early age in grade school. I didn't come out until I was in my early 20s, and at that time, I was already in, um, in graduate school. I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, and I... I came out of the closet. I announced it to my parents. They, and what's so amazing is that uh, God used that crisis mm-hmm. in their life, in particular my mother's life, to bring her to faith. And eventually, then a little bit later, my father also comes to faith. Well, I went the opposite direction. I was going to do- uh, dental school in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was trying to balance going to dental school and pursuing this new, you know, aspect of who I was, I, I would say. And I was fairly active in the gay community, going out to the gay clubs. I was you know, partying and, and doing all the things that many, I guess, college kids and sometimes graduate students mm-hmm. will do. Uh, again, I, I, I want to reiterate that uh, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or sure. promiscuous. That is certainly part of my story. And, and I, I, I want to tell my whole story, but I also want to tell people that when you are converted, Christ is going to touch every aspect of your right. life, and he did with me. So I went, uh, I was in dental school trying to do both. Unfortunately, I got, I got involved in drugs. Eventually, I was expelled from dental school. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and at this time, my parents really had no clue that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs, but they knew that, I, that my biggest issue really was not my sexuality, but my biggest issue was that I did not know Christ. And they prayed toward that end. They prayed for a miracle. My parents came to visit me in Atlanta. I told them to get out. I, mm-hmm. I kicked them out. 
But I really, and again, my parents were not preaching at me. They right. weren't telling me that I was living in sin. They weren't opening up the Bible and telling me what the Bible said. I mean, first of all, I I didn't even own a Bible, so I wouldn't know what you know what they were reading anyway. But they didn't do any of that. But just the fact that that they radiated Christ, even as new believers, that was offensive to me. And I told them to leave. Well, before my dad left, he gave me a Bible, and I simply just threw it in the trash can. That's how much I despised Christianity. Well, they kept praying for me. They prayed for a miracle. My mother fasted every Monday for seven years, once fasted 39 wow. days. And it's, it's amazing that God answered that prayer with the unexpected, which was prison. I found myself in prison. I was arrested. On my doorstep one day was... 12 federal drug enforcement agents and Atlanta police, and I was caught red-handed, just received a large shipment. Uh, I was charged with the Street Valley. What the, the federal kind of guidelines is they make everything equivalent to marijuana, which I, I, what, I didn't even really have marijuana, but I had mostly other uh, mm-hmm. kind of designer drugs, crystal meth, uh, ecstasy, those type of things. And so I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. So I was facing 10 years to life. Well, I called home expecting an earful, and my mother's first words were, are you okay? And it was just so, I guess I I was so listening to my friends about how my parents did not love me and that they would reject me that I wasn't really seeing what was true. And what I found was actually my parents were the only people that came to visit me, and my my friends, my so-called friends who said they would never leave me, they were gone. So I found myself in prison. Of uh, I, I tell the story of, of I found a Bible in the trash can. It was a Gideon's New Testament. I began reading it. And you know, this is what I tell. A lot of times people say, you know, what was it that, you know, did anyone, was it a ministry that that uh, shared you the gospel? How did you become a Christian? Was another person? And, and for me, simply, it was the word of God. Mm-hmm. The success of any evangelistic program or or any ministry is its faithfulness to God's word, and because that's the only thing that that transforms us, God's word. So I began reading it. I mean, Andrew, honestly, I had, I had nothing else to do. Sure. So I I read it, and I read through the Bible several times. Came across passages that seemed to condemn who I was, and went to a chaplain, asked him, and he gave me the wrong information. He even gave me literature, even gave me a book affirming same-sex relationships, and. I look back and I I really don't know why or what happened. I simply just thought, well, I want to read this book, but I'm not going to do it apart from the Bible. So I I really had both books open as Mm -hmm. I was going through it. And this is just the the reality of the Holy Spirit, whose job is to convict us of sin. And the Holy Spirit simply against what was just logical, I, I had everything in me that wanted to affirm this book and I simply couldn't. And I, I just, I gave it back to the chaplain and I kept reading God's word and I realized, and I just came across these passages that, you know, in Christ, in Christ, as we talk about, you know, union with Christ, what does that mean? This, this is who I am. Uh, you know, Paul says, you know, in Acts uh, that as, as Luke has written and, and quoted Paul that, you know, we live and move and have our being and that's mm-hmm. in Christ. Right. So that was so core for me because, and the reason is because for so long living as a gay man, the world, myself, my feelings, my flesh, my friends were all telling me I am gay means this is who I am. Not how I am, but who I am. And to have this 
paradigm shattered was really transformational for me. Yes, I, I went over the passage that talked about that same-sex relationships were sinful, but for me, what really was the turning point was recognizing that this is not who I am. It is definitely, you know, it, it, it's part of our experience as all of us as, as sexual beings, but it is not who I am. So that, and, and it took a while. It wasn't like my mother, it was one day and she, <laughs> it was 180 on a train, May 15, 1993. And she went from darkness to light, went from a darkened understanding to a, a mind that is now being renewed by the Holy Spirit and, and the grace of God. Yeah. But for me, it was about a year for me to turn around to uh, not, not only know Christ uh, and, and recognize him as God and as Savior and as Lord, but also this full surrender of, of who I am. Christ clearly says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And for me, that was my sexuality. Everything that I said was who I was. I needed to deny that, pick up my cross daily, as Luke says, and follow him. So I got out of prison. I applied to Moody Bible Institute because I never got my bachelor's before I went got into graduate school. Okay, um, and then yeah, went on and and here I am. Yeah, so <laughs> the I mean, Lord that, has brought me on this that, journey. That's one of the you know the the, the extreme series. You went from being in prison to now being a Bible professor. I mean, walk yes. us through. It's kind a of, miracle. How, how did that transition happen? Well, okay, so I I, I was in prison and God was. You know, it's so amazing. You have, and and you think of people in prison as monsters, and definitely there are some, but these are people that are just sinners, and they're, they were caught for it. They allowed the their sin nature to amplify and go unchecked, and there's some nice people with good potential. They're smart people. Some of them that maybe never even finished high school, but smart. And and yet they, a lot of them couldn't read. They knew that I went to college, even graduate school. So they had asked me, uh, well, can you teach a Bible study? I'm like, I just, you know, I, I became a Christian like maybe a month ago and you're yeah, asking sure. me to teach the, Bible, you know, <laughs> teach the Bible. They're like, well, but, but you went to college. So God thrust me into ministry and it was so amazing and rewarding and fulfilling and brought me joy that I was like, man, I, I, I'm a felon now. I don't think I could. It's going to be hard for me to find a regular job. But I really enjoy this this gospel work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so God laid it on my heart to go into to full time vocational ministry. God actually miraculously shortened my sentence three to three years. And um, oh, I also forgot to mention, I, I got in prison, I, I, I received the news that I was HIV positive. That was kind of the lowest of the lows. Yeah. So I applied to Moody Bible Institute while I was in prison <laughs> with my references as being a the, uh, one of the prison chaplains, one of the prison guards, and one of the other prison inmates to write my references to Moody. And so miraculously, I was accepted. Got out uh, in July. I went the very next month and started at at Moody. So I always tell people, you should have seen the surprise on the faces of my classmates when I answered their question. What did you do this summer? <laughs> it's like, well, I was in prison. Just got yeah, it. man. Yes. Well, yeah. that's that's uh, so encouraging, and thank you for sharing that with us. And I, I want to kind of transition to something you've already mentioned, and this is that concept mm. of your sexuality being who you are. And and this is where we get to this, this issue of identity and sexuality. And you and, and me and, and several individuals are studying and, and aware of this and kind of this movement of what, we, what we're hearing called the gay Christian movement and, and kind of mm -hmm. this questions about to what extent can people reconcile their 
homosexual desire with their Christian identity or Christian faith. Uh, and so, and I'm finding a lot of problems and a lot of how this conversation uh, is held. So I want to get your thoughts on this concept of identity, of who we are, and and what is identity? And, and can you talk about that in kind of theological and, and anthropological terms? Uh, mm-hmm. I just would love to hear, I mean, if you have a book dedicated to this notion of, of holy sexuality and identity is kind of the concept of the day, talk us through what you mean by identity. Yeah, identity is, it's really, it's an ontological category of who we are, not what we experience. And when I say that, I'm not sort of um, diminishing the reality of our experiences. When I say experience, I'm not just saying what we do, but I'm also talking about um, our desires, our affections, um, our thoughts. Uh, Those are... I, I think are, are are still significant, but I think when we talk in terms of personhood and ontology, uh, especially in theological categories, it's important for for us to to look at at scripture and 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 where that guides us. And of course, we we have the the discipline of anthropology, which um, in the secular world is. One of the most, I guess, um, kind of humanist, you know, disciplines that that focus so much on this uh, secular worldview that it's completely devoid of the way that God would talk about anthropology, the study of humanity, which we, you know we would call that theological anthropology, mm-hmm. uh, the study of humanity through the lens of Scripture and and God's Word. How does God view humanity? I think that's of extremely important question, and when it, as it applies to hu- human sexuality, I, I honestly don't think we can even begin to understand human sexuality unless we start as our foundation with theological anthropology. And what and yes, it's a big term, and many of our listeners will understand that, but, but many don't. It, it seems you know what does that what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's many aspects, but I think two that are very uh, pertinent to this discussion on sexuality. Um, is the concept of the image of God that we get from Genesis 1, mm-hmm. and also the concept of sin, of our sin nature, original sin, what you, as theologians we will call hamartiology. Mm-hmm. So those two concepts, man, if we begin as that with our foundation, in, in a sense, is our presupposition, we will so much better to understand questions like, um, well, this is who I am. I, I've always felt like this, or you know, it's it's so much a part of kind of what I feel and what I do. And and when we understand sin nature, well, the reality is, our sin nature often does feel like who I am. Mm-hmm. For as long as we remember, uh, we've been sinners. Uh, so the and, and also. The fact that even people who disagree with us, even those who are um, who have not been converted yet and have not put their faith in Christ yet, they still um, bear the image of God. Our gay friends, our transgender neighbors, 
uh, still bear the image of God. It's been distorted, not lost, but it's still there. And that means that uh, these people uh, still have value and dignity. So I think these are important concepts for us to begin with when we address this issue of sexuality. So I want to turn to holy sexuality uh, and the gospel, this concept of holy sexuality. So, so mm-hmm. what is holy sexuality? Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you come up with it and, and what does it mean? Yeah, so when I was thinking about sexuality, I was obviously just taking on what the world was telling us. And and this and sexuality, you know, well the categories for sexuality is heterosexuality, homosexuality, and bisexuality in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um and honestly, I think as and I felt like well that, that's that's the only uh, terminology, that's that's the only framework for us to think this through. Uh, and then when I ask, well, what is it God that God is calling us to? Is it heterosexuality? Is it homosexuality? Is it bisexual? What exactly is it? I realized that these terms did not fit into uh, the the clear calling that that God has uh, laid out for humanity when it comes to how we live out our sexuality, um, and he, as He laid that out in Scripture. Because as I read through the full counsel of God, there's really only two paths for us to be on. Either if you are unmarried, if you're single, that means to uh, be sexually abstinent, be faithful to God by being sexually abstinent. However, if you're uh, not no longer single and you're married, what does that mean regarding your sexuality? Well, that means be faithful to God by being uh, completely faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So I call holy sexuality as chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Hmm. And there's no other path or option for us to be on. And yet when I looked at those two clear, clearly articulated paths that God has laid out for us, that isn't what heterosexuality exactly is, because heterosexuality is so broad, it could include adultery, uh, it could include uh, a man sleeping with many women, it could be include a, a, a single man and a single woman living together, and they're even in a committed relationship, Even you can even say they're a monogamous committed relationship, but unmarried, and yet th- those would be sinful. So I, I knew that um, there's no more room for ambiguity today. Mm-hmm. There needs to be more clarity. And so I, I knew that this there needed to be a term for chastity and singleness and faithfulness and marriage. So I, I, I use this term holy sexuality to, to, to refer to that. So you mentioned there's some ambiguity around some terms. And mm-hmm. one of those ambiguities is this question we often hear raised is, is being gay a sin? Is same-sex mm. desire or same-sex attraction in itself sinful? So we have terms like desire, temptation, uh, and, and our sin nature kind of coming to the forefront in these types of questions. So in your book, you talk a lot about these topics and the questions of is is same-sex desire sinful? Uh, and in your book, you talk about all how all desire has an end. Yeah. Um, so can you walk us through this conversation around the topics of desire, temptation, and what is sin, what is not sin in relation to temptation and desire? Sure. I think there's a lot of discussion right now um, among Christians. There is, yeah. Uh, those who identify as gay, celibate Christian, um, those who choose not to use that terminology and and maybe just 
use the term same-sex attractions, which we I admit is is even in itself is is vague, it's ambiguous because what do we mean? And and Andrew, I'll be honest, I actually for quite some time years ago, I would say around the time that I became a Christian, was was uh, was studying in Bible college and even seminary, I, I was strictly using the term attraction, same-sex attractions. And and I kind of sort of just uh, just would assume and say that same-sex attractions are not sinful. And what I realized is when I would try to defend it biblically and exegetically, I had issues. Why? Mm. Because the term attraction is not found in Scripture. The, the, the way that we, you know, we don't have that, in, in, certainly not in the English Bibles, but even when we look at the original language, we don't have that term. And so when we try to find maybe a synonym or something close to it, that's where we get our disagreements. The reason why I said same-sex attractions weren't sinful, I mean, I would just say, well, temptations, you know, that it's, I would equate it to temptations. But then I realized, well, attractions, that's a pretty broad definition that could also include desire. And so this is where I thought, I think they would just clear up so much of this misunderstanding if we just simply use biblical terminology and just stick there. Because when we use these other terms, I even heard people talk about same-sex love. Well, what do you mean? Sure. Because even the Bible talks about love in negative ways. And, you know, that that most of the time, in, in the Old Testament even, uh, you know, talks about love and negative. Samson loved, you know, died, well, he wasn't, <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't call that, you know, good love. And so I, I think, yes, love is a category that we found in the Bible, but uh, it's so, it's too, I love chocolate, you know, I love that television show. So, but I think desire and temptation, these are clear categories in scripture. So, so I decided in, in my book to just stick to those categories and break those down. So, uh, desire, as you said, I, I discussed that how I think most people who would hold to that's evangelical Christians would would hold to, and well, I guess now that's used, used loosely now, but people would say that sex is reserved for a husband and wife in marriage, um, and so and so the sexual desires also would be included in that, and it's and if it's between a husband and a wife, well, that those desires are you know can be good well unless we could get into you know distinctions about this self-centered but let's let's focus on the same sex desire so people will say same sex sexual desire are sinful and there isn't disagreement among those who identify as gay celibate christians um and those of us who uh do not like that framework um but where the where the discussion and difference comes is what about all the other desires? And I think what happens is they lump all the non-sexual desires together. And this is where I disagree and I differentiate between romantic same-sex desires Mm -hmm. and the platonic, which means non-sexual, non-romantic desires. And why is it that romantic same-sex desires are sinful? And this is where I get to my argument about the teleological aspect of desire is that all desire has an end, not only an object, which I think uh, Denny Burke and Heath Lambert talked about, but I think also it's what you're going to do with that object, which is important to the purpose of that desire. That's telos also means mm-hmm. purpose. So if if I, let's say I'm a father and I have a daughter and I, I desire my daughter 
And these are desires for her to grow into a godly woman, to fear the Lord, for, for me to have a, a healthy fatherly-daughter re- relationship. That's a good desire. So that's, that's the object, but also the purpose. But if my desire, the object, is my daughter, and that purpose is to abuse or to, to sexually abuse her, that would be sin. That, that end is sin, and so therefore that desire is sin as well. And we get that from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus actually connects the seventh commandment, the tenth commandment, between covet and the lust, the desire, the and uh, the, the adultery. So it's not only if the act is wrong, but the desire for that act, therefore, is also wrong. So mm-hmm. I call that the teleological um, telos of desire. Desire is teleological. So, so when does something that we desire, when does that become, or when does temptation become sin? I mean, what, what, what is mm. the kind of the line that crosses or that changes where we're experiencing something that we know if we indulge, we will be given over? Uh, yes. But and I know we're talking almost in kind of like milliseconds of like of cognition and awareness. It here. is it's difficult. So it, it is very difficult. But pastorally, this is, this really really matters because people want to know if they are in sin when they experience something that's external to them or internal to them. What advice would you have um, for people discerning when their temptation is actually? Sinful because I mean you would say I think you would that there are some temptations that are sinful. Some temptations are not sin, but some are sinful. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So temptation. So the, we have in scripture um, temptations that are external and temptations that are internal. Right. Right. Uh, external, as in, uh, for example, Jesus sitting around the mount. I mean, clearly that was Satan tempting him. Uh, where it's 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 completely outside of us, and and those temptations. Um, are coming in. Uh, it could be like for a young man, a beautiful woman walking by, and that was kind of an external temptation. But we have a lot of temptations that are internal, and and the reality is these. We need to realize that there we can never say that temptations are innocent. I think that's that's where that's a, a lot word. of people just just stumble and, 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 and they use wrong terminology. Temptation is never, ever innocent. It is never pure. Um, it always, even the external ones, it lands, and I love that this is uh, Denny Burke, his, his, his book uh, really actually had, had challenged me a lot on, on these issues. Mm-hmm. The way it's a very he, good book. Articulated, yeah, just um, the... the and he did really good exegesis there of of going through these different passages, which I have not yet read anyone who's done that yet. And so I attempted to do a little bit of of that in just a, a short uh, one chapter, opposed to you know the the first four chapters of what Denny and Heath did um, in um, transforming homosexuality. But it was really helpful for us to see, and I think Denny said that there is no landing. Jesus had no landing pad for. Temptations to—that's a good word to, to say that—to fall on. We do. Yeah, I do. Uh, we all do. And that—that that landing pad, unfortunately, is our sin nature, as Paul talks about our flesh, our sarks, um, and that's a result of original sin. So these temptations. Um, 
you know, it's we have to be so careful of it. And you said it so precisely, Andrew. It's a millisecond. I mean, I, I you know, you, you can't, it's, it's truly splitting hairs, but almost we can't because of our sin nature be able to separate these, the temptation exactly to, right. to, to desire. So to play with these um, is, is very dangerous. But and yet I also, I mean, I, so I kind of, I deal with People on either side of the spectrum, you know, so I guess we're always, you know, polar opposites. Either we're just like, oh, you know, I, this is the way I am and, you know, temptations are no problem and they're just innocent. And, and so I, what you end up doing is you're really toying not only with temptation that immediately turns into desire, but, uh, you know, it ends up you're, you're just sinning. But then I deal with a lot of people that just are racked with guilt and they can't get themselves out of this hole of just the fact and, and make, you know, I know some guys that they're not even looking at pornography, it's just their mind. Right. And sure. so they're really racked with guilt and, and shame. So I, I want to give, the, I, I want to make them realize that, you know what, first of all, we are all sinners, uh, but I, I want to, I want to let them know that don't Beat yourself up over that temptation and allow the Holy Spirit to do the battle for you and, and to be victorious over uh, that, the, the, the temptation that so quickly turns into the sinful desires. Yeah, that's, that's such a good word and such careful thinking that has tremendous pastoral implications uh, because I, I notice a lot of times when people talk about temptation, hmm. we often talk about it like it's just taking an algebra test. And <laughs> yeah, we right. we seem to ignore or downplay like the utterly visceral a- aspect of our nature in all of this. And, and to realize uh, w- whenever we talk about temptation, we always have to go to this is not neutral. This is not uh, mm-hmm. fair and balanced. We are approaching temptation with a bias and a subjectivity, and that bias and subjectivity is the fact that we are fallen, uh, and that we are. I mean, if we follow Genesis three, Romans eight consistently, we're noetically mm-hmm. fallen. A- every yes. aspect of our existence is fallen, and so uh, this is not just a matter. I-, I feel like sometimes we view it as though we're just arm wrestling one way or another, but mm. in all actuality, the cards are stacked m- much more against us when we talk about mm-hmm. temptation, which means this is all the more where we realize the pervasiveness of our sin and the uh, comprehensiveness of Jesus being a Savior. There's literally no part of us that is not in need of redemption. Right. Um, so I, I want to talk, and we're getting close to the end here, but I want to talk about marriage and singleness. Mm. Um, that's something I hear a lot about uh, people who are are single, and and I think helpfully helping uh, married people reevaluate how we talk about one another, whether we're married mm-hmm. or non married. And you you devote two chapters on marriage in your book. Um, and so, as as folks like you and I have stood for the sanctity of biblical marriage, how would you say that well intentioned Bible believing Christians mm-hmm. have have gotten marriage wrong at times? Yeah, and 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 so I, when I say wrong, and and, and when we talk in, in my book, um, I'm definitely not talking about that uh, the complementarity between man sure. and woman, husband and wife. I'm talking about different aspects where we maybe overemphasize something that was not meant to be. And for one of the things is, I think sometimes in our uh, righteous zeal, uh, which I think is correct to defend and to uplift biblical marriage. 
sometimes we have made it almost an ultimate goal as if this is how this is what god intends for every person and if you don't pursue that or you haven't received achieved that then you have failed or you are not fully human or you aren't fully whole you know so those those aspects though many people might not admit to it, I think sometimes the way that we communicate about marriage definitely gives that impression. Another thing is that we often feel that marriage is the answer to to loneliness, that the one of the almost the main purposes, and it definitely is one of the aspects of marriage, but the main purpose for marriage is companionship. And, and this is, I get into the where I talk about helper, uh, because it's oftentimes, you know, from, from Genesis 2, uh, that oftentimes we take that as kind of that companionship to do something with. And, and definitely it is, we need that helper, obviously, that God provided. But what I was getting at uh, in my couple chapters on marriage is that this aspect of helper, as we look at it, it's actually clearly um, someone to come with us to perform and, and to do something as an action. Mm. And that action is actually in the service of God. Um, and so I think that's important for us to help of our helpmate and how we understand the concept of marriage. Uh, but also getting, uh, just as I talked about the telos of desire, the telos of marriage as well. What's the end? that And, the, and Paul talks about that in Ephesians. Um, that it's this mystery of Christ and the church, and also uh, what even Jesus says in, in Matthew, that that there will be no marriage in heaven. Yeah. So the reality, and, and, and what John Piper says, um, he's, he's preached about it, and it's in his, in his book on marriage, that there is, that, that marriage as we know of it today here on earth, uh, the worldly understanding of marriage is just a shadow of the eternal reality of Christ in the church. And so once, when that is realized, there's no more need for the shadow. And I just love how, how Piper says that. And so I, I think we need to be continually reminded of that about marriage. That's such a good word. And, and I want to kind of close on one final question related to this question of singleness, because... Hmm. It seems to me right now there is uh, the accusation thrown out at Christianity and Christian ethics in particular mm. that celibacy or chastity is a form of cruelty. Uh, it's a form of inhumanity that when we tell someone that is same-sex attracted that you cannot pursue a relationship, a, a same-sex relationship, that that mm -hmm. consigns that person to a lifetime of loneliness um, a, uh, there's a lot of harming their dignity, and that it produces profound psychological stress. Mm. Um, I find this to be the most kind of loaded, and uh, I would say, I would say the most successful talking point that those who are critical of the Christian worldview would have. I would disagree with it, but I understand right. why it's an effective argument. What do you say to that type of criticism of Christian sexual ethics? Well, I, I think we need to realize, I think one of the things that why we got there is how we have really denigrated singleness and uh, just being a single individual. And I'm not talking about the world. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't blame 
unbelievers for thinking that because of the distorted understanding of not only the world, but about who we are and our finiteness. This is all there is to life is here on earth. But even as Christians, we can help uh, people who do not hold to any faith to understand this as well. But that, that we give this impression that loving, love and intimacy can only occur in marriage. And that is such a lie. That is so untrue as if before any of us were married, even though I'm single, you know, as a single man, as if I'm incapable of experiencing love and intimacy and relationship. And we know that just to be utterly false, but that's the the, the lie that, that we have bought into. Um, I, I've chosen in my book to, to just use the word singleness and, and chastity, abstinence, and I've kind of deliberately not used the word um, celibacy. And the reason is because, uh, well, for a few reasons. First, one of the reasons is because uh, this is not a word that we find in the Bible. Of course, it comes from the Latin word uh, celibatus, and that word celibatus is not even found in the Latin Vulgate. It isn't until later in church history that this word was used. And unfortunately, through church history, that term has kind of gone from just meaning unmarried to now meaning a lifetime vocation hmm. uh, to That's not get word. married. So I don't agree that we are called to this lifetime. I don't find, actually, even in, in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul talks about calling, if you look clearly, he is not talking about a call to singleness. He's actually talking about the call of salvation, it, talking about how you were called. In other, if you were called as a free man, remain a free man. If you're called um, as a, a slave, remain a slave. And so if you see that call is not a call to singleness, is a call of, you know, that the time that you receive the call of salvation. So we've we've misunderstood and applied a call of vocation to singleness, and not to say I mean a person be call, could be called to singleness as a person could be called to be a fireman or whatever, but it's not a, 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 a something that we can find in scripture. And the other thing is this lifetime aspect. The way I see singleness is not this even the gift of singleness is not this lifetime thing, but it's something that is just viewed to be something that's good. That um, we should always live as Christians that we're very careful not to plan our future, not to say, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I've I did that for a while and I've found myself to be wrong many, many times. Um, so although I'm living and embracing this gift of singleness, I would. I'm very open to what God can do sure. in the years ahead, and I'm open to to marriage. So I think it's as we talk about these people who say that singleness is unfair. I think we need to help people realize that first of all, people who are unmarried, people who are single, are not living a half life, mm. are not living an unfulfilled life, are not living a life that is completely devoid or incapable of love or intimacy. But as Christians who are not single, that's a huge challenge because honestly, I think we have failed our singles. So that really is a challenge for uh, people who are married to really be extremely intentional to reach out to our single brothers and sisters and live as a family of God. There's, that's another chapter that right. instead of talking right. about spiritual friendship, I think the true answer that the New Testament is calling us to is spiritual family, which is the local church, the body of Christ. And we've, we've kind of lost that. I, I really think if we lived as 
true brothers and sisters in Christ, a lot of these issues of loneliness and even depression would be mitigated. That's such a good word, Christopher, and we could spend the next three hours going through themes <laughs> from your book, because I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, and I think that there is some good work being done right now that's being that's being forced upon us, and I think we're answering well in helping people understand sexuality, not in just a narrow kind of proof text type of way, but in a broader theological context. And I think your your book is going to be one of those books that helps us uh, understand kind of the full picture of why and how God made us sexual beings. And so I want to thank you for your work. Um, and just thank you for being with us today. I know we've taken 45 plus minutes of your time, uh, but thank you uh, for being with pleasure. us today. So Thank you so much, Andrew. Well, Christopher, I uh, hope you have a great rest of the day. And uh, again, his book, Holy Sexuality, comes out November 20th. And uh, I'm sure he'll be doing quite a bit of uh, promoting of that when the book releases. And I uh, highly recommend it and uh, would, would recommend that you as a pastor and you as a layman would check this book out as well. Mm-hmm.